Brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study of these important words of our Lord. We see the, we saw last week the the first full-throated Christian confession. And today we, we learn the centrality of the cross. Now, interestingly, this is just a little textual note that I want to make note of. I've said many times, and you've probably heard and read on your, in your own study, but when the word of God was written, and like when Matthew wrote his gospel, when, when these were written in Greek, there were no paragraphs there were no chapters, there were no verses. Uh, there, in fact, the, in the unseal, which is the, the technical term for the original manuscripts, everything was capital letter with no spaces. Like, imagine typing your keyboard with no spaces between words, nothing. Just, just everything is just like that. So the task of breaking it down into modern is, is a challenging one. But, but here's the deal. The thing we call 16, chapter 16, verse 28, is when in the Middle Ages, when they busted it up and they were breaking things out into chapters and verses and they were assigning all this stuff so that we could locate things quickly and easily, um, the thing we call Matthew 16, 28 is in the Gospel of Matthew presented as the final bit of information in this section. But if you look at Matthew, or if you look at Mark, in its breakdown of the Greek text, they decided back in the Middle Ages that this, this, these same words would, instead of being sort of lumped with what he's saying here about discipleship, they would instead make it the, the first verse of the section about the transfiguration that comes right next. So, that's making a point. It's telling us where in the, in the mind of the, of, of the translator uh, wh where that verse belongs. But in Matthew, by leaving it here, it's telling you the hope that it instills in us as we look towards a future glory. So the same words, but if you read, based upon where it's placed, it gives you a different feel. And that's the reason. So Matthew had one purpose, and they're trying to convey it. Mark had another purpose, and they're trying to convey it. But in every way, you can trust your Bible, okay? Well, let's go ahead and let's read Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for this call to follow. Indeed, this call to die. Grant that we would not recoil from these words, but that we would hear and see the beauty of them. Grant that we would be faithful in every way. For Christ's sake, we pray it. Amen. Writing in the late 30s, early 40s, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Sort of anticipating this by half a century, a famous missionary named William Borden was born in Chicago. He did not live to be an old man. He was born in 1887, and he died in 1913 before we even entered the First World War. But he got saved under the preaching of R.A. Torrey at what is now called Moody Church in downtown Chicago, a place where up until just a few years ago, uh, the famous Erwin Lutzer was, was the senior pastor. Uh, he was he was born to a wealthy family who had made a fortune in the silver mining business. But shortly after coming to the Lord, he, he perceived a call to missions in China. And so after his death, they located his possessions, his earthly stuff, and they found his Bible. And it was given to his mother after, after they found it. But she found in one place the words, no reserve. And he had actually dated it shortly after he had renounced his fortune to pursue missions. Flipping through that Bible, at a later point, his mother discovered that he had written no retreat. 
And it was dated shortly after his father had angrily told him he would never have a position in the company and he would never see a dime of inheritance. No retreat. And then shortly before he died of fever in Egypt, he had written and dated the two words, no regrets. No reserve. No retreat. No regrets. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is paradoxical. And indeed, at opposition to what is one of our core driving forces, the drive to stay alive. But Jesus, he calls us to something higher. This passage here is a conundrum for the disciples when they hear it. Because central to this passage is the cross. They could not countenance the cross in the first century. Famously, y'all know the story, it was a, a means of horrific torture and execution. First seeming to be implemented by various barbarians. Then the Romans got a hold of it and said, ooh, that's a great idea. But so heinous was it that, that the, the great Cicero himself argued successfully before the Roman Senate that no matter the offense, no matter how egregious the serial killer, which was the case at point, no Roman citizen should be subjected to something so heinous as the crucifix. But it was nonetheless implemented across the Roman Empire as a means of torture, humiliation, shame. It left a very visible picture of what happens when you oppose the might of Rome. And in depictions of crucifixions, we tastefully leave a loincloth over Jesus. But the fact of the matter is the very point of the cross was the complete and utter humiliation of the victim. And so for the Jews, they made no distinction between nailing to a cross or hanging by a rope from a tree, if, if you were on a piece of vertical wood off the ground in any way, shape, or form, you were hung to a tree. And according to the word of God, that meant you were accursed by God. So the cross was horrific. And it was to be banished from the mind of any first century Jew. The cross, nonetheless, became one of the earliest and perhaps the most enduring symbol of our faith. The earliest symbols of Christianity were things they could keep on the down low. Like the ichthus, the fish, where they could 
draw just half a circle and then have someone else do the other half a circle. And the ichthus cleverly, which means fish, also serves as a helpful acronym for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, an early creedal statement. It wasn't until Constantine converted to Christianity in the 4th century that he, one, outlawed execution by crucifixion, and two, made it legal to be publicly Christian. And so at that point, Christians started wearing symbols of their faith publicly. And the cross was there. What is it about the cross that would make it so that way it transitions in the mind of people from the most heinous of images to a symbol that we wear happily around our necks and adorn in our decor? Well, because... It's where our Savior died. It's where his blood was spilled and our sins were atoned. It's where peace with God was made. And so while it is heinous, it was on that heinous piece of wood that our pardon was purchased. And so what is ugly to the world is beautiful to us. But we ought also bear in mind that the cross represents the command of Jesus, the call of Jesus to come and die, that you might live. We saw last week that Peter rightly confesses Christ. He properly identifies Christ as being the Christ, the son of the living God, and And he's lauded by our Lord for that right confession. But we see today how, in a moment, Peter goes from being a rock on which the church will be built to a stumbling block for the faith of others. And we see the integral nature of what we confess. And so how the confession of Christ as Lord becomes the key But it's really important that we not fall into the trap of the first century Jews, of the mindset of Peter. When we understand the Christ, we cannot understand Christ apart from the cross. When Jesus is introduced and refers to himself as the Son of Man, That famously comes from Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. And here are these words. Daniel, he has a vision, and and he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So that is the image. 
That's the picture of the Christ. In possession of a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. And all peoples, nations, and tongues will be brought into subjection to him. Sure, there were other passages. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men who we esteemed him smitten by God and afflicted. But those didn't make their way into the formulation of who and what the Christ would be. Daniel 7 is the picture of what the Christ will be. A conquering hero. And so when Jesus starts talking to the disciples and he's being plain with them. Yeah, we're going to go to Jerusalem, we're going to suffer all these things, be rejected, and be killed. That is completely out of alignment with any perception of the Messiah that they had. And that's Jesus' point. We've got to look at Christ not through the lens of how we want him to be, but through the lens of the mission of God and who God reveals him to be. Peter was guilty of thinking of Jesus from a, from a culturally conditioned standpoint. Well, if you're the Messiah, you're going to be a conquering hero. And he had a very clear idea of what a conquering hero would look like. Probably something along the lines of standing over Pilate's dead body, perhaps holding his severed head. Maybe Caesar's. How many faulty conceptions of Jesus exist in the world today? Buddy Jesus, hippie Jesus, free love Jesus, Marxist Jesus, capitalist Jesus. I could go on and on and on. But Jesus reveals that he does not conform himself to the expectations of any people or culture. He conforms himself to the plan and purpose of God. Notice in verse 21 the word must, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. He must. From whence comes that must? From the sovereign plan of God to save a people. That must right there you need to perhaps circle it or underline it, but right there, when he must go, right there, that's the price of your salvation. That's him going to make atonement for your sins. That's him purchasing your pardon. He must. There was no other 
way. Our salvation was the mission. And that's the path marked out for him. To fully atone for the sins of his people. To give his life as a ransom for many. To be afflicted, despised, rejected for the sake of those he came to save. That's what he came to do. Not to set forth a political agenda. Not to set forth principally a social ethic. Principally to save because we, apart from him, are condemned. Our situation apart from him is dire and desperate. And we need what he has accomplished for us more than anything. So Jesus comes to save. And that salvation requires the utmost. But then he calls us to discipleship because he's saving a people and he's turning us into a kingdom, priests to our God who serve as his body. Last week we saw how Jesus sets forth the church, his body, his bride, his household, and he establishes keys and he gives authority to exercise. He sets up the church. But here he issues forth the summons that characterizes the basic path of discipleship, which is a dying to self. And that dying to self part is vitally important. Because we don't want to die to self. We want the self massaged. We want the self maybe polished, but not sanded. We want the self glorified. But notice that even in the life and ministry of Jesus in this passage, verse 21 showcases the humiliation, the shame, the agony, the suffering. And it's not until verse 27 that you see the glory. And that is the fundamental orientation of the Christian faith. Is that it's this theology of the cross now and we get the glory later. But those who try to circumvent, undermine the cross and its call to suffer, to get straight to the glory, undermine the integrity of the gospel altogether. For instance, despite what Jesus says here and in many places, there's there's an egregiously wicked theology called the health and wealth gospel, or name it and claim it. And your faith is evidenced by the possessions you have. It takes your eyes 
off of God. And he being the all-satisfying one. And it puts it on material things. With God being little more than the genie who's to give it. So missionaries in Africa report that preachers will come in and say such heresies as place your faith in Jesus and your, and your flocks won't be eaten by lions. Oh, your sheep wouldn't have died if you had but a little more faith. And here at home, show how much you have faith by giving your meager retirement. And don't worry, God will bless you more. Give so that I might have a jet. And God will bless you. You don't have a positive daily experience, it's because you don't have enough faith. The sign of blessing and favor from God is an easy, happy, struggle-free life. And if you don't have it, it's only because you don't have enough faith. And that is wicked. That is wicked. Now, we don't struggle with the health, wealth gospel in our congregation. We don't struggle with it in our tradition. But there at the end, maybe, maybe something hit a little close to home. We do, as created beings, seem to be drawn towards this idea that those with whom God is pleased have pleasant life circumstances. Ergo, if I have unpleasant life circumstances, God must not be pleased with me. You ever thought that? And sure, it is true that sometimes being in the displeasure of God results in discipline, which is never fun. And sure, sometimes God's pleasure looks like material blessing or relational blessing. But what we learn with a biblical worldview is that God's plan and decree, which is sovereign, has a path marked out for you. And God will not be satisfied to give you a little, a little temporal, temporary blip when what he has in store for you is a mountain. The call to discipleship, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. He's not talking about the modern colloquial sense of just bearing with or tolerating things we don't like. That's not what he means. He's not saying, hey, become more persevering and forbearing. No. He's calling us to a new identity guided by a new purpose towards a new end. To deny himself. That means I have strong impulses. 
I have strong desires and thoughts and inclinations that, are, that would ordinarily drive my steps. And in being called to deny myself, I'm being called to resist those natural urges and impulse. And the, to take up my cross means that I'm to do the thing which I naturally would not want to do which would perhaps from a different perspective be abhorrent to me and to do it. When we are to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow him at a very high level, what this would look like is whatever Jesus says we believe. Whatever Jesus commands we do, and whatever Jesus does, we imitate. Everything that makes up our sense of projecting the self is subjected to the will of the other. That's what happens when you're forced to carry a cross. You no longer have a say. So, so many people, and I do think uh, we can, sh so many people fall onto one of two sides of the what's God's will for my life thing. So many people want, they're, they're looking for divine guidance of every little minute decision. And then there's the other side which says basically my, my views are baptized in the decree, so I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do and whatever comes to pass, hey, God's mine with. I do think there's a middle way and it involves us recognizing Fundamentally, as a fundamental attitudinal position of our heart, that with Paul we recognize, I am not my own, period. I have been bought with a price, period. So what that means is, I'm not a free man. I, I have dreams and aspirations, but those dreams and aspirations aren't necessarily what I'm going to do because I am not my own. So what we should be doing is, instead of presumptively endeavoring, going out, I'm going to become an accountant. What we say, first and foremost, is I would say unto you, Pray beforehand, oh Lord, I would very much like to be an accountant, but not my will be done, yours. And if there is something else you would like me to do, please make it plain. But then, not just in the decisions we make and the things we do. The way we evaluate our attainments and priorities and the projection of self, it gets to get reborn. Look at how Paul considers himself in Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. Consequently, it is no longer I who live. 
but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's entire way of looking at the world is based upon the fact that Jesus died for him and bought him, and he is now property of Jesus. So Jesus doesn't just get to be the one he says, hey, thank you for saving me. Jesus is his Lord and master. And so everything that used to be important to him, as we learn in Philippians, is no longer important to him. His way of understanding self-worth has been radically changed. His identity is changed. Laid down our rights to self and take on the yoke of Christ and follow him. Give Christ your ego. Give Christ your demands. Give Christ your expectations and give Christ your aspirations. And, and, and the wisdom of the kingdom is this. We think we got to jockey for first place. We, we, we really got to push our way to the trough because, you know, we're going to get left out in the cold if we don't. That's the way our flesh works. But the way the kingdom works is that in seeking to attain stuff, and seeking to make a name for ourselves, we lose it. But in losing, we gain. So we can be free from the impulse to push, the impulse to jockey and fight and position, precisely because we have a Lord who promises. And that's, and that's the point of verse 27 and 28 here in, in this passage. He's gonna come and he's gonna give in accordance with what you've done. So never fear. There is nobody who has not suffered loss or ridicule or, or anything whom he has failed to notice. You will get yours. And, and as sort of an exclamation point, he gives this little foretaste of glory that like an appetizer at a restaurant, some of the disciples are gonna get to see the glory that he's talking about. But we can hope and have confidence because he has promised. And because he has promised, we have a great assurance precisely because he has done everything he said he would do. He rose from the grave. That's proof positive that we can have confidence in what he accomplished for us and that must. And that just as his mission was centered on the cross, so too the cross characterizes discipleship that we are walking and living at the behest of another, setting aside all selfish ambition for the purpose of him who saved us. And he will reward. So, do you, like Borden, consider your own life in such a way that you can say, 
no reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. The person who can say that is the person who is at the very cusp of eternity's weight of glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the call to come and take up our cross and imitate Christ. Thank you for the promise that you will indeed reward. Jesus, thank you for being willing to endure and suffer and die for our sake. Grant that we would indeed know that the life which is to come in every way eclipses this present existence so that we can with joy walk the course that is set before us, bearing the cross as long as it is ours to bear. For Christ's sake we pray it. Amen.